My name is Richard Morellis, and I want to welcome you to the Prison Post. This is your podcast for conversations surrounding the need to reform prisons from the perspective of formerly incarcerated people, community members, and leaders in the restorative justice movement. The Prison Post will feature an episode every Wednesday with people who are in the fight to restore lives and heal communities. At the age of 19, Carlos Aceves was sentenced to 29 years to life for first-degree murder. Carlos was incarcerated for 21 years and was released at the age of 40. He served all of his 20s and all of his 30s incarcerated in the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Carlos was fortunate to be a part of a rare number of people who are found suitable for parole at their initial board of parole hearings. In California, the percentage of those who are found suitable for parole at their initial hearing is 2%. Found suitable in 2011 after 16 years and eight months, Carlos had to wait for three more years before being released. He was born in East Los Angeles on December 12th, 1973. He just turned 46 years old. Five years ago, Carlos left the prison system and paroled to San Diego, where he lives today. Carlos has worked hard and used his time wisely since being released. He is one of the most inwardly transformed men that I have ever known. He has reaped the benefits of his work ethic and drive. Today, he owns a five-bedroom, four-bathroom house that he converted into a sober living facility for the formerly incarcerated, and he is in the process of purchasing his second sober living transitional house in the next few months. Since his release, he's ran a couple of marathons, graduated from Toomey, the Urban Ministry Institute, on the outside, and became a dual diagnosis counselor. He is currently working for ARC, the Anti-Recidivism Coalition, and goes into four different prisons on a regular basis, helping men transform their lives through the principles of cognitive behavioral therapy. He drives to those prisons in his white Mercedes-Benz E350, ANG, by the way. The most important person in Carlos's life is his wife, and he is excited that they're expecting a son, whom he has already named Marcus Aurelius Aceves, the famous Roman general, who penned a maxim that Carlos lives his life by today. Live not one's life as though one had a thousand years, but live each day as if it were your last. In this episode, Carlos will share his own story and how his prison experience led to his ultimate transformation. Thank you, Richard. Thank you for having me today in your podcast. Oh, it's our pleasure. It's our pleasure for sure. Just want to, you know, first of all, state that, you know, me and you, we, we knew each other for six years while incarcerated. The last time I saw you before a few months ago was in 2009, and uh, it was a great reunion out here at Sacramento in the Capitol to see you again. That same smile, you don't look like you aged a bit. Yeah, wasn't it this year that I saw you? You said 2009. That's when I left Dr. Chukawala. I think it was several months ago, like five, six months ago that we met in Sacramento. Right. I guess... Uh, yeah, we were there for the Senate confirmation for Ralph Diaz. Right. Uh, Art was there as a block to confirm the Senate and saying that we support him because he supports rehabilitation. Yeah, we were able to uh, share a meal, take some pictures, uh, hug, <laughs> see your smile again, that infectious smile. Yeah, that, that was a beautiful thing, seeing the grace and mercy of God of just releasing us, amen, so we can just be reunited and have that camaraderie. Yeah. For sure. That was humbling as well. For sure. So now it's been five years for you fin- since you're incarcerated. That's correct, sir. Are you off parole? No, in fact, I got another two years on parole. 
Okay. So the penal code is this, Richard. If your sentence was before 1983, it's three years, 15 to life, five years, and 25 to life is seven years, according to the penal code. So I'll have another two years of parole to complete seven. Okay, great, man. Man, I wish there was a way to get off earlier. That maybe that ought to be a law that we work on. Yeah, I, I heard that through my pro one of my pro agents that they're working on that. I think it's nineteen twenty or nineteen forty Senate bill, but if they pass it through, that'll cut parole in half. So hopefully that gets passed through. That'll be great. So let's go back, man. Let's go back. Uh do you still remember, you know, what it was like for you the day you were released from prison? Just describe that day in detail and what was the process of your release? What is it what was it like walking out of the gates? Okay, well, prior to that day, I remember praying one time, and my prayer was composed of, I just want to be able to go to the beach and walk barefooted to declare my liberation, because in prison, you have to have the mentality that you have to be suited and booted always with your shoes on. So that was a prayer that, that I prayed once upon a time, and the day came. They told me Tuesday, hey, you're leaving Thursday, and I remember calling home. And talking to my dad, I'm like, hey, dad, it's time coming home. And he was like, kind of perplexed. What do you mean you're coming home? I go, yeah, they said that I'm coming home Thursday. I go, don't worry about picking me up. I'll find a ride. And I paroled to the lighthouse. So that day that I got up, I got up, got dressed, went out. And I remember the gate shutting behind me and the van took me outside of the gate. And there was a man out there that I never met, a representative from the lighthouse. It's a, it's a transitional sober living that I was required to go by the board. And so this man picks me up and I introduced myself to him. I get in the car and he starts driving away. And it seemed like it was like, like, like it was a dream because as he's driving, I'm like, man, they're going to find out they, need, they shouldn't have let me out. And he's going, I keep looking back at the prison, and he's driving away. And I'm thinking in, in my mind, man, go, go, get away, get away, right? <laughs> and I was relieved, but that's what was going on in my mind. And as it, further he got away from the prison, I realized how fast this man was driving. Because in prison, we're walking, what, two, three miles per hour? And this guy was going 75 miles an hour on the freeway. I started having this anxiety attack. I didn't know it was an anxiety attack. I started holding on to the dashboard and the side door. And I'm thinking, this dude's going to kill me the first day that I'm out. Right? <laughs> this guy's driving way too fast. And I started tripping hard, man. I'm like, this dude needs to slow down. I wanted to cuss him out. But I just kept everything inside. And I'm like, oh, my God. I can't believe that I did all these many years just to die the first day I'm out. And so I just said a prayer and I calmed down and he's driving with one hand talking to me. I'm like, dude, put both hands on the steering wheel, right? But I'm not saying anything to this guy. I'm just arguing with myself in my own mind. Finally, I calmed down and he says, hey, have you ever had a Starbucks? And I'm like, I don't even know what a Starbucks is. I told him, he's, oh yeah, just a coffee. Here, I'll buy you a Starbucks. And he bought me a Starbucks. And next thing you know, I drink the Starbucks, and I'm, like, lit up. I'm, like, wired, right? And <laughs> yeah. he's like, hey, yeah, we're going to drive you to, to San Diego, you know? And I'm like, all right. So he takes me to San Diego. And they release me early, like, at 7 in the morning. And so by the time I get to San Diego, it's, like, 9.30, 10 o'clock. And from San Diego, I guess every Thursday, I got a release on a Thursday, they go to the beach, Right. The, the program they take the the guys there to the beach it's, a, it's like a drug rehab kind of sober living transitional 
And so they're at the beach, and I get them. They're like, oh, yeah, take them to the beach. So these people I didn't even know take me straight to the beach the first day I'm out. And next thing you know, I'm walking on the sand barefooted, and I walk into the ocean. This was August 21st, 2014. And then I start crying, and I'm thinking, oh, this is what heaven feels like. I'm thinking this is a dream. I'm thinking I'm in heaven. I'm not thinking this is real, because I just came straight out of prison, straight to the ocean by these people I don't even know. I don't know nobody, and I'm in the ocean next day. I'm thinking I'm dreaming. I'm thinking this is a taste of heaven. And uh, after an hour of just floating in the ocean, I come in, and they're barbecuing, and they introduce themselves to me. And I'm like, man, this must be real. And that was my first day out. It was beautiful. It was humbling. It was me being great. I felt like I was reborn into society and came out a different and changed man with a different perspective in mind. So that was my first day out. And you went directly to the transitional housing? I went I went from there straight to the beach. And then after the beach scenario, we went back to the transitional housing. Uh, it's called the Lighthouse. Lighthouse. And there they, they run program all day, like cognitive therapy program, relapse prevention, anger management. They run classes. And so I stood there for three months, and then from there I went to the lighthouse. The reason I ask is because some people are allowed to stay uh, at least one night overnight or sometimes a weekend overnight. I know you got out on a Thursday, but were you allowed an overnight with your family? No, you know what? I didn't even ask, and I didn't even know. So, no, I just stood there for about three months. That's awesome. The food they served there was really good, man. It was like a little restaurant that they had there. The food was delicious. I can imagine. Now, at that time, when you when you first went were incarcerated, you said it was was it, did you say it was ninety three or ninety four? I picked up my case in ninety three, and I, I went straight to prison in ninety four. So ninety four, I believe that Gray Davis was the governor. Is that correct? That's correct, and he stated that if you committed a life sentence, if you took a life, you will be paroled in a pine box. It was I got. Uh, when I got busted, it was under the Pete Wilson, Ray Davis administration, and lifers did not have no hope at that time of ever getting out. When I got sentenced, I started in Calipatra in 94, 95, 96. I was in Calipatra State Prison, level four. And I remember when I was in Calipatra, I remember getting on my knees and praying, and God revealed to me, I'm going to get you out of prison so I can bring you back into prison so you can tell them that I got you out. I remember, so I had peace. It didn't matter who governor, what governor was on deck. I always had that reassurance that whatever happens, I'm going to get out of this place. And sure enough, God opened the doors. And the first prison I went back to was Calipatra. On the very yard, God told me, I'm going to get you out. So you can tell these people I got you on. I went back to the same chapel, the same yard, and told these people. And it was uh, like we had a mini revival. It was awesome. That was like that was like another dream. Like it came full circle. It's like I was here. I did time. I was in this chapel, and I remember getting on my knees and praying. And God revealed to me that He was going to get me out to bring me back in. Now I'm back in. I'm on parole, and I have the keys. And it's only He can open doors that no man can shut. And he shut doors that no man can open. And I'm here to tell you that God can open these doors. I'm still on parole. I shouldn't even be here. And I showed the inmates, look, I got the keys to the prison. 
and only God can do that. So I was humble, blessed, and I was excited. I was on fire too. That's a powerful testimony. How long ago was that? Man, when I first that was about three years ago. Yeah, about three, four years ago. Is there... I got about a year after I got out. I've personally been out nine months now after serving a 25 years to life sentence as something that I would like to do. Is there, is there a certain amount of time that one needs to stay out before he can go back into the prison? He or she can go back into the prison system to share. You know, that uh, adage old saying that says it's not what you know, it's who you know. (laughs) Yeah. Literally it's who you know that can get you back into prison. Like I'm still on parole and I go to Corcoran level four. I go to Kern. North Kern and Donovan, and I'm still on parole. So, so it's who you know, and ultimately, it's if you have that desire in your heart, I believe that providence and God's sovereign hand will open these doors so you're able to walk in back so you can testify. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you mentioned going in. Since you mentioned that right now, uh, what do you do? You go into these four prisons, and you know, describe that process and and how you came to be uh, someone who does that. So in 2009, when I left Soledad, when I left you in Soledad, I went to Chukawala. So in Chukawala, there was absolutely no program. So me and a couple other brothers got together and we created uh, self-help programs like cognitive therapy, relapse prevention, cognitive impulsivity. We created all these curriculum. We created about 21 self-help, right, with with curriculum, books, panel certificates, the chaplain, the email, the AANA sponsors. They're all... They all came together and we created these legitimate courses and classes to help the inmates. How were you able to wrap your head around the sentence you were given 29 years to life at the age of 19? You know, when you're given that type of a sentence, you can lose your insanity. And I think that at that time, putting my faith and trust and my higher power and believing in Jesus Christ and his death, burial, resurrection and getting that salvation that he offers brought about that peace that I can do all things through him because without him, you will literally lose your mind to do that much time is that they sentenced me 29 to life and I haven't even lived 29 years. So you will lose your mind. Anybody will lose the capacity of their mind thinking and dwelling upon that. So are you saying that you really couldn't even comprehend it at the time? No, that, that was, it was too much to digest my finite Mind couldn't wrap around itself. How are you going to sentence somebody 29 to life if he hasn't even lived 29 years yet? You know, to me, that was crazy. And what about, what about your family or your friends or those who were in your life at the time expecting the best through this, through this court hearing? Did you go to a trial? Yeah, I did go to the trial. And they're, they're waiting, they're expecting the best, and they hear that their son, their grandson, their brother, their friend, is given 29 years of life. Do you remember what, what, what they were thinking or what they were feeling or what they were saying back then? I know that they had a lot of pain. They were suffering. They were mentally perturbed, confused. They had a lot of doubt and uncertainty. But they tried their best to put on a smile, saying, we're here, we'll support you, we'll love you, we'll see you through. But you can see that behind that mask, there was a lot of hurt and pain that I've caused them for the sins of my youth. I know one thing, when you've been forgiven, you're allowed to to show that forgiveness. Like you don't hold resentments, bitterness, 
whether they were their families, friends, or foe through the course of the time, you don't hold nothing because if you've been forgiven much, you forgive. Like whoever does anything to you, that's my philosophy. That's what I believe. That's what's written in the Bible. So from a biblical stance, I just forgave people. I just forgave them. I loved them. I was excited to see my family, to to get reacquainted with them, to get to learn, you know, them. And to be honest with you, some families, uh, Richard, they're crazy and dysfunctional. One person I wanted to see in particular, and that was my daughter, Samantha. When I was inside prison, she was like my angel. I got to see her when she was just a baby. A couple of months old, I remember her mom bringing her to Calipatra, and she went to the restroom, and I was holding this little girl, and something in my spirit says, you're not going to see her for a long time. So I prayed, and I committed her into God's hands, saying that you can be a better father than I could ever. Please provide and protect and guide her, because I can't. And then I didn't see her until she was 13. And this was in Solidar. When she was 13, I saw her at the visiting room. I went. She looked identical with me uh, to me with long hair. She was a reflection of me with long hair. Picked her up, held her. And then I didn't see her until I got out when she was 21. And uh, we ran a half a marathon together. Wow. We, we went to the beach. Uh, we had a beautiful rapport, relationship with one another. It was, it was a gift. Yeah. That's wow. the one person that I wanted to see and I connected with. In 1993, I was convicted for first-degree murder, and I was high on methamphetamine. I had a psychosis episode and took out uh, uh, Mr. John J. Swale, who did not deserve to die the way he did, and have long-standing remorse and regret for what I've done. Uh, he was a good man, and I believe that I believe that he's in heaven looking down upon me. I changed because I was him. I lived my life for him and making amends and helping people out. And um, it was tragic, it was senseless, it was reckless. I have no excuse. And the time that I did get, I deserved every day of it. And um, I just thank God that he's a God of second chances, that he's merciful, that he's gracious, and that he's forgiving, and uh, that he took that shame and that guilt. And um, life is beautiful, and I believe that everybody deserves a second chance. And for those that have loved ones that are incarcerated, keep praying, keep having faith, keep encouraging your loved ones. And uh, God will hear. He's a just God. He's a merciful God. And the Bible talks about that Moses committed murder, yet he wrote the first five books of the Bible. King David committed murder, and he wrote some of the most beautiful Psalms ever recorded in the history of mankind. And the Apostle Paul committed murder, and he wrote half of the New Testament. And here's three influential men that committed murder in their communities and society, yet God redeemed them and God used them and God blessed them. And he can do the same. Everybody's redeemable if we put our faith and trust in God. Going through the court proceedings, I mean, when I was in county, I was had so much anger, so much rage, and I was getting fistfights, and I didn't care, and I was cursing and having a profane vocabulary and I just had a lot of hate, a lot of anger. And uh, when the judge said, oh, we're going to sentence you 29 alive, uh, I didn't care. I was stiff-necked, uncircumcised. I was prideful. I was arrogant. I was ignorant. 
And I remember one night in the middle of the night, I couldn't sleep. And everybody was talking about, God loves you, God this. And I didn't want to hear it. I just had so much rage and anger in me. And I established myself through violence the first couple of months of being in the county jail. One night in the middle of the night, I remember crying out, God, are you for real? I'm not going to do 29 years to life, then go to hell. Take me to hell now was my prayer. Like I didn't want to live no more. And when I was God this, God that, nothing. But when I said, Lord, something was choking me, like, don't say that. And when I said, Lord, I felt something transparently, like, leave my body. And I felt God's Holy Spirit come into me. And I started crying like I never cried in my life, like I was being baptized. And all that anger and hate and rage and violence that I had within me was gone. And all I had was love and joy and forgiveness and God's grace and mercy. And that's when the change happened. That's when I knew that Jesus Christ was forever. And I committed my life to him and serving him. And this happened in 1993. Wow, that's powerful. That's powerful. Earlier, we were having a conversation and you talked about um, penitence. We talked about how that was the root for what they call penitentiary, or this not used that often to describe prison. Yeah, penitentiary, the etymology root word for penitentiary is penitence. It comes from penitence. Back in the day, they would build penitentiaries in the middle of nowhere. Hypothetically, you can say like Pelican Bay, Calipatra, Corcoran. These prisons are literally in the middle of nowhere. And hundreds of years before that, prisons would be places that were exiled. And the reason for penitentiary is for the convicted felon to commit to practice penance, which means having that remorse and that sorrow for the guilt of the crimes that they committed. And so through them practicing penance, they would bring about repentance, which means change in the Latin, and they would change their lives and the way of thinking and that criminality. So penitentiaries were there so people can practice penance and become reformed, rehabilitated. So, yeah. And it sounds like that's how that's how God used prison or the penitentiary for you to get remorseful, to get to get right in your thinking. To Absolutely. Absolutely. It was I believe that it helped shape and formulate the man that I've become. I regret what I've done. I have shame and guilt, but it was needful. Like I needed to go to prison. And I deserved every time every Every day that I spent in there, it was well-deserved for what the committed crime that I've done. And I believe that people that are in there, instead of allowing the time to do them, they can do the time and become better people and become rehabilitated and change in the process so they can be restored to their communities and society and their loved ones. Thank you. That's, that's, uh, that's meaningful right there. And, when do you think that you were ready for freedom? I believe that I was ready for freedom. You know what? There was an incident that happened the 17th year. Um, I found out that somebody hit my brother over the head with a bat. He was fighting one guy, two guys, and somebody hit him over the head and kind of left him for dead in the alley. And I remember 
that when I found out, I was so angry. I had so much rage in me. And this is me reading the Bible every day, going to church and saying my prayers every day. Then I found out by making a phone call that somebody hit my brother over the head with a bat. He was fighting two guys and they left him in the alley. I had so much rage and so much anger because that's my blood. That's my brother. That had I been out, I would have committed a hardware crime by, by doing something to them, by taking them out, literally, w- without remorse. So I knew that I still needed time in prison. And when I found that out, I, I couldn't sleep for like two, three days. Like the hamster was spinning his wheel on my mind. I, I couldn't sleep. And I literally had to pray for God to take that out, out of my heart, because it was still in there. And after much prayer, he took it out. Like if something happens to one of my loved ones or a family member, I won't do anything. I'll call the cops. But before, I thought I was jury, judge, and executor that I had to handle. And no, you can't. You can't. They have law enforcement for a reason. Now I would call the cops. Now I'm a punk. I'll call the cops. Officer, I'd like to, to report this. But before, I thought for some reason that I had to go and do something and get that revenge or stand up for my family or whatever. I had this twisted, convoluted philosophy that I had to do something. No. I don't have to go out there. That, that's pride. That's ego. That's a false belief. And now I can call the cops and say, cops, I'd like to report this. This is what happened to my family member or whatever, and let them handle it. I'm not judge, jury, and executor. I don't know what I was thinking. That's that criminal mindset behavior that you have to do things. What's the biggest way that you changed from the way you thought then to the way you think now? Well, that right there was the tipping point because had I been out there after 17 years of being incarcerated, I would have committed a similar crime because of what happened to my brother. And I think that knowing that and praying and having God uproot that out of my my heart, out of my spirit, that that was the shift, the tipping point that, you know what, now I know that I'm no longer the same person. Like I won't commit another act of violence no matter what. Like I'm geared to calling the cops, running away. I don't have that criminal mindset where I have to establish myself. It's not about my ego. It's not about my pride. It's not about my machismo. It's not about that. It's about doing the right thing. Going back in retrospect to that prayer that God was going to get me out, I knew that that I just had to do the right thing, whether it was academically, with education, whether it was through Safa. I just knew that I had to do the right thing. And it was his timing and not mine that these prison doors were going to open, that he held the keys that, that no man can shut, and he opens what no man can open. So I just had to have faith and trust, but also got a couple of degrees along the way and took partook in self-help and learned all I could and took Toastmasters. I believe we were in the same Toastmasters class together in Soledad, and just to excel in whatever endeavor I was engaged in. You know, it was it was uh, Shakespeare that said, "To thy own self, be true." You have to be true to your convictions, not 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 the politics on the yard. To your own convictions, and it was Socrates that said, "The unexamined life is not worth living." We have to constantly examine our lives, 
And it was Aristotle that said, your choices, right, and not chance determines your destiny. It's the choices that you make. It's not chance. The choices that you make that determines your destiny. And we have to choose. We have to choose what is right, what is appropriate, what is what is going to get us our suitability and restore us back not only to the community, but our beloved families as well. So it's choices. It's a matter of choices. And there was a philosopher that says, if you can't choose, if you can't choose for yourself, others will choose for you to their advantage. And the thing is, the majority of prison populations, other people are doing their choosing. And there comes a time where you have to stand up. You have to stand up for your convictions, what you think is right. And, and having done all stand, like the Apostle Paul said in the first century, you have to stand up to the principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high place. You have to stand up for what is right. But if you don't know what is right, then you're going to fall for anything. I hear you. Uh, you know, I remember you being one of the only guys in there who would be reading the philosophers or having St. Thomas Aquinas's um, The books and- you wanted to take from me and I didn't give you. Remember that. <laughs> and and uh while i was in there I'm, I'm the only one reading all that well there's only a few of us a handful of us that are reading this literature that's 500 to a thousand years old and uh you know what led you to start reading you know the the, the great philosophers and and the great uh theologians i took a philosophy class in, in uh, college right through correspondence coastline and it piqued my interest and I had an old Sally, Mark. I used to call him Mark Estado. And uh, he knew a lot about history and philosophy. And we would get into these in-depth conversations. Then I met another brother. His name was Pat that did 40 years in prison. And this guy was amazing. He would quote all the philosophers, no history, psychology, theology. And I just gravitated to his knowledge and understanding. And he would tell me things. And I will go research the matter to see if these things were so. And that's how I just got intrigued and fascinated by them. So, yeah, Pat was a good friend. I called him the general. Uh, uh, he wrote several books, but we wrote one together on that called The Kings of Praise. And it just takes all the scriptures from the Bible and, and how praise is, is, as you praise God, that it's a powerful tool and a weapon to defeat the enemy, the devil, that he runs from the praises of God. And through Pat, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about history, philosophy. He's a scholar. He's This guy's a straight professor. He did 40 years, close up to 40 years, and uh, he's doing well. And I visit him occasionally, and I consider him my elder, and I have the utmost respect and admiration for him. And uh, have you been able to re- reunite and reconnect with Pat since his yeah. uh, has been released? He- yeah, in fact, I'm at his house. I brought my wife over. He lives in Temecula, and we're just it's a beautiful house that he has on top of a hill. And, and uh, we were talking about philosophy and eschatology and theology this morning and last night, and we were just engaging, you know, biblical prophecies and the different interpretations. So yeah, he's sharp. He's sharp as ever, and I enjoy <laughs> I enjoy our stimulating dialogues that we have occasionally. And what a powerful experience it is to be with, be brothers on the inside and then to come out here, especially with you serving 21 and him 39 or 40 years. Yeah. And to be in his home, even just to look at each other. It's, it, oh, it, was it is a miracle. This morning, his wife and my wife, they made us pancakes, eggs and bacon and, wow. and, and uh, potatoes with cheese. I mean, we had a straight buffet this morning. Even. So, yeah, it was it was amazing. It was cool. 
it was good to see our wives meet each other. The stuff Amen. we talked about behind the walls, we're doing outside of the walls and still reuniting with brothers and friends and, you know, faring each other well and encouraging and admonishing still one another. So it's a beautiful thing. Carlos, what would you say to those family members of the incarcerated who are wanting their loved one to come home like you, who may feel like their sentence is too long, who wonder whether or not change is possible for them? I would say to put their faith and trust in the God that does the impossible. For them to continue to pray and to encourage their loved ones to do well, to do good inside, because that's going to be a reflection. Uh, A good predictor of our future is our past. And if they're behaving and doing stuff up and getting education and vocation, then there would be, these are marketable skills that they're able to use out here and function in society. So to keep the faith, uh, to trust God, and that he will open the doors for them. Absolutely, because I had 20 nights of life, and he opened the doors, and he restored me, not only to my family, but to the community and society. And here it is, I'm on parole going in, on parole into the prisons. He's blessed me with a house. He's blessed me with a car, a wife, and I have a baby on the way. My wife's six months pregnant. And all of this, their sons can have as well. The Bible says God's no respecter of persons. What he did for one, he'll do for another. But we have to put our faith and trust in him. And uh, in doing so, he's, he's a just God. He's righteous. He's merciful. He's forgiving. And he'll move mountains on the behalf of his children and those that pray in faith. Amen. That's powerful, Carlos. Uh, what do you do today to stay close to God or do you do daily devotions? Well, I try to have a balanced life. So I say my prayers, uh, read books on theology to stay connected. I go to church weekly. Uh, I did to me out here in free society, which took me four years. It's a four year biblical seminar class that you do at the college level. My wife is doing it as well. So I help her. So kind of to stay connected with the fellowship and the household of faith and, and talking to brothers because iron sharpens iron. So one's continent sharpens another. And, you know, exercise, run. Uh, I was half marathons that I ran, Richard, not full marathons. I want you to get that correct okay. uh, uh, on your introduction and your prelude that, that you did at the beginning. Um, so... <laughs> Just trying to have a well-balanced life and to live in simplicity. There's a lot of distractions out here in free society. And going back to basics, the fundamentals, just live simple and be grateful. Don't look at the things you don't have. Count the blessings that you do have, your health, your family, your loved ones, clothes on your back, the food on the table. Because sometimes we start looking at the things that we don't have, and that's when we start murmuring and complaining and becoming angry and ungrateful and, and it's unhealthy. That coupled with prayer and having faith and trusting and believing God. So that's it, my friend. Is there anything else that you would like to share? And also, what about to the brothers and sisters who are still incarcerated? Do you have any words of encouragement, advice to, for them? Yes, we're doing everything out here as lifers to help you guys. ARC is writing policy, going to Sacramento, Senate Bill 260, 261. Uh, we support and advocated on that, Prop 57. So things are changing, and uh, we're at the forefront of it, and we're pushing hard, and uh, we love you guys. We miss you guys. Don't get 115. Stay out of trouble. Don't get involved in the politics. Have faith. Go to church. 
do your education. That's huge. If, if you don't allow this time to pass you by without you getting a degree, they got correspondent college classes in there. Take advantage of them because you're, you're going to need that out here to survive. So I encourage my brothers and sisters that are doing time to, to, to hit the paint hard. Uh, focus on vocation and education and don't forget to say your prayers and go to church and give it all to God. Thank you for listening to The Prison Post, a production of The Crop Organization. We'll be sharing more stories from the world of prison reform and restorative justice, so please join us. You can listen to The Prison Post on all major podcasting platforms. Subscribe to our video cast on YouTube and like us on Facebook at The Prison Post and at Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs. 